right, so again, we're finding ourselves in the book of Numbers, Numbers 16 and 17. These are jam-packed chapters. There's so much for us to consider. I split it up into two parts. I left you hanging. Some of you might not know what's about to happen. Uh, some of you know what's going to happen, but we're going to just take a look at it. I need to get ourselves uh, kind of caught up. A reminder that we've looked at these particular passages, or uh, we're looking at these particular persons as they have been used by Jude to point out some aspect of apostasy. And we're looking at Korah in his attack against Moses as an example of what apostasy looks like. How does it manifest itself? And it's interesting, as we noted last week, that the Word of God devotes two entire chapters to this particular character. And so there's a lot for us uh, to consider. And so let me just have, catch us up by noting last week the progression of Korah's rebellion. I'm just going to give you a brief synopsis of the points that we've considered so far. This is beginning in number 16 and verse 1. And we see, first of all, Korah's presumption. Remember, Korah, Dathan, and Abram, uh, Abram uh, considered that Moses had somehow exalted himself, that he was vying to be the king of Israel, that he was just manipulating and, uh, all the circumstances and spinning the narrative in a certain way that everybody would exalt and honor Moses. They presumed their presumption was that Moses' motivation and service was directed by something selfish in him, failing, as we noted last week, that God had actually appointed Moses and Aaron to this particular task. So that was their presumption. In verses 4 through 7, we noted the proposition. As these men were accusing Moses and making these accusations against Moses, in verses 4 through 7, Moses proposes that they allow not themselves to have a debate. Let's not have a debate and see who's the best debater. Let's just let the Lord decide which is always a good thing, right? Uh, and we're going to see how that will work out as he says, let's let the Lord settle this tomorrow. We'll have this dispute taken care of. Then we saw the perspective in verses 8 through 11. Moses reminds Korah of the special task and position that the Lord had given to Korah as Levites. That, you know, there's a tendency sometimes amongst those who are falling away from the Lord to envy certain positions and tasks that, really aren't theirs instead of recognizing what has God actually given you to do? What are the blessings you actually possess from God? And so there's a tendency in apostates to take what God has given you as trivial or as light. And then we saw the persistence of uh, uh, the persistence in verses 12 through 15. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram are persistent in their attacks on Moses. Moses, again, says, hey, let's let the Lord decide. Uh, let me give you the right perspective. God's blessed you in, in these certain areas, but they're persistent, and they keep up their attacks on Moses and the leadership. They make those false accusations. They create now a different narrative, a false narrative, by which they hope to do what? What is the goal of uh, Korah? He wants to lead others away from Moses. And while he can make it sound like maybe it's good and right, he's trying to do that, the issue is he's moving them away from God's man and God's word and God's will. That's the practice of an apostate. They're persistent. 
We saw the presentation in verses 16 through 22 that Korah and his crew bring their censers. So they're bringing that which is supposed to be the, only the task of the priest. They bring their censers and they begin to perform those priestly functions and it is a violation of God's word. The Lord had seen enough in these verses and he calls Moses and Aaron to instruct the congregation to do what? Get away from them. I'm about to do harm. So that's the presentation. We saw the preparation. As the Lord prepares to bring judgment on Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, uh, and anyone who followed them, there's yet another call for the congregation. Separate from them. He's God seeking to be as gracious as he can as he prepares for the judgment. And that brings us to where we are now in verses 28 through 35 and what we'll entitle as the punishment and we note this beginning in verses 28 through 30. Notice what the text says. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. Well, having had his own actions and motivations brought into question, Moses declares a sentence of judgment that is utterly unique. And he sets it up this way. He says, hey, if something ordinary causes the death of these men, you can know that I'm a false prophet. But if God does a new thing, if God does this extraordinary thing, then you have to know that these men have spurned the Lord. And so the proof that these men were apostates and rebels against God's will and way was not seen in the simple fact that these men would die. He's just not saying, hey, the punishment, you're going to die. He says, how they're going to die, the nature of the death. The earth would open its mouth and swallow them and everything they owned and take it down into the pit, that is Sheol. Then, he says, you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. In an age in which we express some semblance of tolerance for the belief of others, except largely when it comes to Christianity, we can't have tolerance for that, I notice it's interesting that the Lord says otherwise. There are some practices of people that you should have nothing to do with at all. And God says, I had enough with such apostasy. It's time for it to end. And so he brings us, uh, there are some thoughts and philosophies and lifestyles and even religions that invite the harsh judgment of God. And really, what should you do? Separate yourself. Get out of the way. Either the Holy Spirit's going to bring conviction on them or the Holy Spirit's going to bring judgment on them. That brings us to a devastating uh, se uh, sequence. As we read through the text, we find that judgment comes in two phases, and the first phase is found in verses 31 through 34. Notice what it says. And when he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. How's that? And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah and their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol 
and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, the earth may swallow us up. Well, now that's the first smart thing the congregation has done in a while. The text tells us that Korah and his crew and everything that belonged to them, it was swallowed up in this most dramatic fashion. But there is one exception, one that's not noted in our text that I want to identify for you. You say, wait, it's not in the text. How do you know? Because the Bible tells us elsewhere. There were some that were there that belonged to Korah that didn't listen to Korah. Well, who are we speaking? At least some of the sons of Korah escaped. Well, how do we know this? What happened? It may be that Korah did not come up to the door of his tent as did Dathan and Abiram. Perhaps even at the moment, uh, this is why, because he was having this internal argument with his sons. It may be that uh, they were having this argument that resulted in the sons fleeing out the back door, running for their lives. We're not certain. Perhaps they left even before this event took place. And so when Moses calls uh, Korah to come out and he doesn't, he's too embarrassed that not even his own family would stand with him. Whatever the case, the sons abandoned their father to his apostasy. And their descendants became actually prominent in Levitical service, not priestly service, and they began to write psalms. There are nine psalms ascribed to the sons of Korah. But in our present text, what the people saw was everything being swallowed up alive by the ground opening up, and this caused the people to shake and to flee and to tremble and fear and that this doom would overtake them as well. As overwhelming and as devastating as this first phase was, there was yet another phase to come as Korah, Dathan, and Abiram had been supported in their apostasy by those 250 Reubenites. So the ground opens up and takes the the three men and their families and all the men that were with them. Now judgment in the second phase overtakes these 250 Reubenites. We read in verse 35. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. Now, I I just wish I could get my head wrapped around what's taking place. Ground opens up, swallows up these people over here. People are running for their lives. They're fearful, and you think everything's over. And then fire comes down and starts picking off 250 of these other men. And you want to think that there was terror in the camp of, of Israel? Well, there was. Right, The fire came forth from the Lord and consumed them. These men, like Korah, had set aside God's will and God's way regarding proper worship and service. Even as Korah aspired to be a priest, so these men, who were not of a priestly tribe at all, the tribe of Reuben, aspired to be priests. The, the fact that they had no scriptural or spiritual qualifications for the work made no difference to them. They were out there doing the duty of a priest. They had reduced the holy calling of the priesthood to a mere job for which any reasonably intelligent and influential man could qualify. Well, God says no. He puts an end to them and their pretensions. And what is before us is a people who, want, who think that secular education or social position or being very good at business or having personal charm qualifies them for, to be a pastor or a minister or an elder or a deacon. And God says, no, I have my qualifications for my men. Well, it brings us to verses 36 through 40, and we have the preservation. 
in verses 36 through 40, we find Moses instructing Eleazar, who is a son of Aaron, a priest, to gather up the censers of these godless men. And notice when he's doing this, they're still smoldering. They're still burning at the moment that he does this as he's picking them up from the judgment. The fire kindled by these wannabe priests, which was still burning in the censers, was to be scattered as proof that God himself had rejected it. We read in verse 38, As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets for a plating of the altar, since they did not present them before the Lord, and they are holy. They shall be a sign for the sons of Israel. What is he having them do? He takes that which they had done uh, poorly. He's burned them all with fire, so he's purified this. He now has it all hammered and put on the altar. And what happens at the altar? The eternal fires, the, the everlasting fire is burning on them. So it's just a picture that their judgment is ongoing and eternal. It never ends. What a picture. What a picture that every Israelite from then on, when they approached the bronze altar with their sacrifice, would be reminded of God's judgment on the apostate Korah and his crew. According to verse 40, this was to serve as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord so that he will not become like Korah and his company just as the Lord had spoken to him through Moses. So this was the, this was the whole point. And I, 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 I can't re tell you how many times I've read through the, the accounts and think later as you think about all the sacrifices that I failed to remember that Korah and his crew are being represented every time the altar's on fire. And it's the judgment. Well, so here we've had all of this judgment, right? This, pro, uh, uh, this judgment. And now we come to verses 41 through 50, and there's yet a, a provocation. At this point in the narrative, you would think the people had seen enough. They surely have learned their lesson. They surely would be humble. They certainly would now say, oh, we need to obey God and follow the man that he has appointed. They've been terrified. They knew they disobeyed the Lord by challenging God's man, Moses. But let me tell you something about apostasy. It dies hard. When the dust finally settles, we read in verse 41, but on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel, what'd they do? Grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you talk about spin. You are the ones who caused the death of the Lord's people. Here we see the beginning now of a new rebellion. It was bad enough that it was Korah and, uh, and Dathan and Abiram and the 250 Reubenites. Now a whole new rebellion. The, the ringleaders are gone. They've been destroyed, swallowed up. But the sin, their sin had crept into the hearts of the people. You might want to go back through chapter 16 and note how many times the word against is used against Moses, against Aaron, against the Lord. 
these people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And not what, what, what does this mean, by the way? I mean, we see this happening in our political structure right now. All, all sorts of wacko things take place, and you think finally people are going to see it, right? Well, the problem is if people see what they've done wrong, if they admit that they did something wrong, they're admitting that they're sinners. And no one wants to admit they're a sinner except the heart that's been pricked by, by the Holy Spirit. These people did not want to see themselves as sinners. And so they're trying to figure out how do we pin this on someone else? How can we pin this on Moses and Aaron? And they did so by saying that Moses and Aaron, you are responsible for the death. And note the spin here. You are responsible for the death of the Lord's people. These are God's people. Well, what was the accusation? You're setting yourself up as to be God's man, and you're not really God's man. But now we're going to accuse you of being, of killing God's people, of the Lord's people. There's no fear of God. There's no recognition of what God had just done to vindicate his holiness, to reveal his will, and to make his bare arm of judgment known. He said, by the swallowing up and the burning of the fire, you, Israel, will know that you've spurned me. No. There was no gratitude that they themselves had been spared by the grace of God from being swallowed or burned up. Rather, there's this renewed outbreak of rebellion, a sudden outpouring of sympathy for the very apostates who had just received their just rewards for their sin. This reminds us how quickly heresy can recover itself and the ease with which it finds fresh sponsors to carry on its cause. Some of the ladies are doing a study in church history, and one of the things I think I hear them talk about uh, on occasion is all the old heresies they see in, in the present today. There's nothing new under the sun. They just get a new paint job, they get a new facelift, and they come out once again. And, and that's what heresy is. Behind all of heresy, of course, is the evil one himself. Apostasy was uprooted here, but it would spring afresh again in some other soil at another time. Uh, and, and Elijah would be raised up to take care of 450 prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. But tomorrow, Jezebel would threaten his life and he would shrink. And so we see this new rebellion always creeping up. But that brings a new revelation, a new revelation. The congregation now turned into a mob. And this mob was converging again on the tabernacle. And it was determined so it would seem that what they want to do is actually sacrifice Moses and Aaron to their wrath. But something happens that causes them immediate pause. The Lord shows up. What was about to happen, they had seen just the day before and yet they had forgotten. It would be enough to strike terror once again into their sinful hearts. We read in verse 42, and it came about. So the mob is coming after Moses and Aaron. And it comes about, verse 42, however, that when the, when the congregation had assembled, here's that word, against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Boom! God's there. 
We read that Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. Why are they there? Because that's where they're safe. God's protecting them now. The whole congregation might be against them, but if God is on your side, if the Lord is for us, if God be for us, who can be against us? Here's that, that whole principle. They were safe in the arms of God. In other words, you guys want to get to Moses and Aaron? God says you got to get past me first. Well, it wasn't just the appearing of the Lord that shows up. It's also, do we not have this on the next verse? Are we still there? Oh, I'm sorry. We're, you're in the right place. I got lost in my notes. You can go back. The anger of the Lord. So the first sub-point was the appearing of the Lord. Now we see the anger of the Lord in verses 44 through 50. As you read verses 45 and 46, the anger of the Lord was enraged against his people and, and it's who seemed impervious to anything and everything except the wrath of God. God tells Moses and Aaron again to separate themselves, get away from this congregation, uh, and something happens here. So remember what happened with Korah. God says to Moses and Aaron, get away from Moses, uh, get away from Korah, and they do. And then Moses says to the people, get the people away from, uh, uh, from these guys, and they do. Now the Lord comes to Moses and says, get away from the people, because I'm about to do another judgment. But notice that rather than abandoning the people to their well-deserved doom, Moses and Aaron do something different. They fall on their faces before the Lord. But this by itself would not be enough because according to verse 46, even though they fall on their faces to plead for the lives of these people, there is the proclamation the plague has begun. The plague has begun. Yet Aaron obeys the voice of Moses. And in fact, he makes his, takes his censer full of fire from the altar along with the incense and he makes his way where? He goes into the very middle of the assembly seeking to make atonement for the people. That's verse 47. What a picture this is of the only remedy there is for apostasy and the inevitable judgment that comes with it. What is the only remedy? There must be an intercessory. There must be the work of a great high priest himself. And we see that's the very case of what we find in our salvation, the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who comes into the midst of his people, who offers up what? Atonement. Jesus illustrates this truth when he was nailed to the cross, and he prayed for the poor deluded men who did the dreadful deed, saying what? In Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And, of course, Jesus goes to on to accomplish atonement. Amazingly, the message that apostates detest so much is this message that when believed, this is the only way that the wrath of God can be turned away, is through the intercessory work of the high priest. According to verses 45 through 50, the atonement offered by Aaron in this case worked. Aaron took his stand between the dead and the living in verse 48. Can you imagine being Aaron? I mean, Moses says, go out in the midst of them. Moses, they're dying. Yes, go out in the midst of them. You want me to stand by dead people? Yes, because if you don't, they're all going to die. So he goes and he stands between the dead and the living. This is where Aaron finds himself. He is the appointed mediator. And if he had not gone, there would have been the annihilation of the entire nation. 
But here is this mediator standing in the midst of the people, hands red with blood because he had offered up the sacrifice of an atonement, but not before 14,700 people had perished, excluding those who had died the day before. What had happened the day before was serious enough, but this new outbreak of wickedness was so much worse that God took out so many more. How thankful Israel should have been that they were up there to sacrifice Moses and Aaron, and Aaron makes a sacrifice and stands in the midst of them, and only 14,700 people die. They should have said, thank you, God, for Moses and for Aaron. Thank you for appointing them. What a picture of how thankful we ought to be that Jesus was willing to stand between us and the wrath of God. Well, this brings us to the proclamation in verses 17, in chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. As this event comes to an end, there, is, there are still a few lessons that we can learn, and there are three. And the first one is the test in verses 1 through 7. All up to this point, what, what had started this? Moses, you have made yourself something, and you are uh, self-important, and you are ruling and, le- uh, and uh, lording it over us. And Moses says, hey, let's let God decide this. Well, so far, that hasn't been figured out. <laughs> so far, it's just been judgment for all the sin. So now we come back to the test, and God is about to finally and fully settle, once and for all, the issue of leadership within Israel and the question of the priesthood. And the Lord proclaims this test. And it was a simple but effective test. If you read through the text, and again, we don't have time to read through it all, we find that 12 leaders, one from each tribe, including the tribe of Levi, were to bring rods before Moses. As each leader appeared before Moses, Moses wrote the name of the tribe upon the rod. Aaron's name was written out on the rod as the head of the tribe of Levi. Then the Lord proclaims the test in verses 4 and 5 where we read, You shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I meet with you. It shall come about that the rod of the man whom I will choose will sprout. Thus I will lessen uh, myself from the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. Again, 12 dead rods. They're sticks, people. Dead sticks, walking sticks. There's nothing in them. They've been separated from any source of life for quite some time. And these dead sticks, these dead rods were laid out in order in the most holy place before the Ark of the Covenant where God sat enthroned on the mercy seat between the cherubim behind the veil. Only God could make a stick alive. Resurrection life would be the hallmark of God's chosen man. Life that would be symbolized in the awakening to life of one of these lifeless rods. In verses 6 through 7, the Lord's test was enacted. The various leaders brought their rods and gave them to Moses, Aaron, along with the others. You would think that the people should have already known what the outcome was going to be. I mean, why are we doing this? We're going through this exercise in futility. We know what's about to happen. We've seen what God has just done. But again, apostasy dies hard. It would be only those who are most stubborn in their sin and unbelief that would make Moses go through with this this test. They had seen before 
what Moses had done with a rod. Recall? What had Moses done with a rod before? Well, in Exodus 4, his rod became a serpent, and that became a rod again. Aaron's rod had also become a serpent that swallowed up the serpents of the Pharaoh's court musicians and once again became a rod again in Exodus chapter 7. Aaron's rod had struck the waters of Egypt and turned them into blood in Exodus 7. Aaron's rod summoned frogs by the millions up from the Nile to turn dust and turn dust into lice in Exodus chapter 8. And it even caused the magicians of Egypt to acknowledge that this was the hand of God. The rod of Moses had summoned thunder and hail from heaven above and fire to run along the ground in Exodus chapter 9. Moses' rod had summoned a, 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 a plague of locusts to ride upon the wind and, and devastate Egypt in Exodus 10. The rod of Moses had divided the waters of the Red Sea by means of an east wind in Exodus 14. The rod of Moses had smitten the rock that brought forth water like a river in Exodus 17. Why do I share all of this? When God says, have the men bring their rods and we'll see who's, who's my, who is my man, these, these men should have done. That should have been enough for the people to say, yes, we understand. We, we, we get it now. But unbelief is never satisfied, beloved. It is never satisfied no matter how many miracles, how many signs, how many wonders are performed. Unbelief has a very short memory for God's wonders and a very long memory for what it imagines that God, uh, that God, what God should be like, how God disregards our needs, how God failures, fail, uh, fails to answer our prayers. But this leads to another test. The test leads to something else, to a transformation. Notice in verses 8 through 11 that we read of a miracle. In verses 8 and 9 we read, Now on the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony. And behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe, ripe almonds. Moses then brought out all of the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his rod. So what happens? Moses goes into the holy place. And he retrieves those rods. And when he comes out, there's one rod that exhibits something. It exhibits supernatural life. It had gone from bud to blossom to fruit. It was Aaron's rod. He held all the other sticks under his arm and he summoned the leaders of the tribes to come and he gave to each one. He handed them their dead sticks again with their names written upon them that was surrendered the day before. Each man had the dead stick, but the miracle was performed by God on one. And it reminds us that the miracle was brought forth not because of the person, it wasn't done because of, of um, natural, the natural talent of, of Aaron or his social position or his business success or his religious zeal or his personal charm. You read through, you might find that Aaron sometimes lacked in all of those qualities. It would be hard to think of a more convincing proof of whom God had chosen. Only God's man 
who is in God's place, at God's time, working in God's way, can produce life as that life is from God himself. This wasn't Aaron's doing. This wasn't Moses' doing. This was God's doing and God's choosing. All other ministry represented by those rods, all they can do is produce dead, lifeless, worthless ministry. It is a delusion. Apostates and false teachers will ultimately only produce worthlessness and deadness. But the servant of God who is empowered by the spirit of God sees life spring forth from his ministry. God empowers the spirit, uh, God empowers, empowered by the spirit of God sees this life come forth, buds into blossoms, into almonds, fresh life in Christ, fragrant life in Christ, fruitful life in Christ. All of these stages represent new divine supernatural life and are produced when a ministry is from God as a result of the activity of the Holy Spirit. According to verse 10, this transformation displayed was to be memorialized. So just as the, the censers were beaten down and put onto the altar to always be remembered that the fires of God's judgment were burning against Korah and his rebellion, Notice in verse 10 that, that this bud, uh, this budded uh, life-filled rod was to be memorialized. Verse 10, but the Lord said to Moses, put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they will not die. And so what does Moses do? He obeys. And he placed the living rod within the sacred ark of the covenant. He does so along with a jar of manna and the unbroken copy of the law. We read of that in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4. The other leaders were still carrying their dead rods with them. They would carry them the rest of their lives. And now Aaron had no rod. But I suspect that whenever people saw Aaron rodless, they would remember what had happened. When they saw his empty hands, their thoughts were directed instantly to that living rod that was inside the veil with the ark beneath the mercy seat, under the eye of the cherubim, and under the blood in the presence of the Lord. Such was the ministry that Aaron was appointed by the Lord himself, and no one was to forget it. And this brings us to one final lesson in verses 12 and 13, the terror. Upon seeing what had taken place, Conviction now falls on the people. It's about time, right? They should have gotten this a long time ago. They had all come to see themselves in their sin. They began to recognize God in his awesome holiness. They understood their need of a spirit-led ministry in their midst. And so we read in verse 12, The sons of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, we perish. We are dying. We are all dying. Everyone who comes near, who comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? What has just taken place? This is the testimony, beloved, of every sinner who approaches God apart from Christ. And Aaron serves as a type of Christ in this whole, whole account. And what is that? What is the testimony? If you are apart from Christ, if you are apart from the work of the great high priest, here is your testimony. We are dying. We are all 
dying. And this is followed with the realization in the form of a question, are we to perish completely? And what is the answer? Yes, if you continue in your unbelief. No, if you will embrace the grace of God as offered, offered up by the great high priest of God. For all who reject Christ, there is this certain doom. You are really not dying, you're already dead. And you will remain dead completely. These two short verses mention death, dying, or perishing five times. These people understood all of a sudden where they're coming from. This is, all, this is the end to all who reject God's word. This is the end to all who reject God's will and God's way. This is the end for all those who question God's manner of ministry. And we see it today when this, why must it only be men who preach in the pulpits? Aren't women capable? Well, women could preach in a pulpit. What's the problem? It's not God's way. It's not God's will. And so that's what's coming about. We see the same spirit of apostasy creeping into the church in one of the largest, well, the largest denomination, uh, Protestant denomination in the world. This is not speaking of taking, however, an issue of certain belief or practice proposed by God's man and, and saying, if, if I have a particular viewpoint on one thing and it's not something that Scripture speaks explicitly, that's not questioning God's manner of ministry. Man, rather, this is assuming a position or a role in the church that one has simply not been called to. There is a fine line between questioning something the minister of God is doing and challenging him as to suggest that the one that he's not the one who should be doing it. That you know better than what God, than the man who God has called to that particular task. When you do that, you bring harm to yourself and to the congregation. The author of Hebrews offers some good direction in this matter. Notice with me Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. And we read this. Remember, and that word remember means keep at the forefront of your mind those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, what are you to do? Imitate their faith. I would have you note in this verse that it is not a call to imitate just one man. Because if you were to imitate just one man, you would fall woefully short. I may especially appreciate the ministry and the example of John MacArthur, but he's just a man. And just one man who has spoken the word of God to me. The call is to remember any and all who led you. Isn't that what it says? Remember those who led you. And so I would say that I've listened to over the course of my years, John MacArthur and Steve Lawson and J. Vernon McGee and Rocky Wyatt and various Sunday school teachers and the like. And so what am I called to do? I'm called to imitate their collective expressions of faithfulness to God. In addition, we read in a verse like Hebrews 13, 17, just a few verses later, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Can I tell you something about Korah, Dathan, Avaram, 
and 250 Reubenites, they were a grief to Moses and to Aaron. Can I tell you something about 14,700 who perished? They were a grief to Moses and Aaron. How do I know that they were a grief? Because they were so concerned for their souls, Moses had Aaron run up into the midst of them to save them. And it was quite unprofitable for them, was it not? While you may not always agree or may not always understand what a leader says or is doing so long as you see him striving to do the will of God, there is to be an obedience and submission. Not begrudgingly, but understanding that such leaders, what are they doing? What is the call of a pastor and elders in a church? They are called to keep watch over your souls. They pray for you. They seek to understand God's word and communicate it to you. And one day this text tells us they... Not you in this context, but they will give an account. Can you imagine just the responsibility of that? Just stop for a moment. Fathers, you will give an account for your family. Okay, we've got a big family here, so you've got, you've got some explaining to do, right? Okay? But now, take a church. And everyone who's been through the doors of Hope Community Bible Church over the 27 years that I've been here and I know that one day I will stand before God and give an account for how I ministered to them, how they were involved or engaged or not engaged in ministry. Now think about that task. That's what this text says, that there will be an accounting of how these people responded and interacted in the ministry. And while walking the line between rightly interacting with those whom God has placed over you in Christ and outright challenging positions and motives does not make a person an apostate, but we must realize that constantly challenging a leader, as uh, Korah and Dathan and Abiram did, constantly challenge the leader means one of two things. Either the leader that you're challenging is not God's man, and you should get him out of there, or if you're continually challenging him, uh, if, as long as he's doing the will of God, you're on the path to apostasy. That's what the choices are. You're unwilling to submit and obey to those whom God has placed over you. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So we see that apostates have this, this really irritating uh, rub on those who are seeking to effectively minister the word of God. Because... There's going to be an accounting for them as well. So not only those who are joyful, I'd be blessed on that day when I get to say, here's what these people have done to the glory of God through the ministry uh, here at Hope Community Bible Church. And God will say, yeah, but what about these others? Do I have to talk about them? According to this verse, yes. Will Moses give an account for them? He probably already has because it's already in here. But... Uh, there's the, there's the issue. So where do we get down to the, the bottom line is this. We must be wary of the rebellion of Korah, which really is simply a challenging of, a, a constant challenging, did God really put this man over me? That's really what ultimately happened. And couldn't I do a better job? That's what's taking so let us be wary of the rebellion of Korah, whose life was characterized, as we noted, as being against God and against his chosen leaders, rather than working with them to the glory of God. And what is the inevitable result? They all perish. They all perish.
Father God, we thank you for this account. We thank you that you've given it to us for our benefit. We thank you that you've given it to us to all remember the seriousness of, which, of that which you've called us to. Father God, I think of the body of Christ. I think of what is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, that the Spirit has appointed to each person a gift for the common good of the body. And not all, will, uh, not all will be heads and not all will be hands and not all will be feet. But whatever task that you've called us to, what a blessed position it is to be. Lord, that we would serve in that position with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to the glory of God. And that, Father, we would work with one another to, to certainly push one another onto greater Christ-likeness. And that's from the pushing of the the pastor to to know you better, to the pushing of the the youngest of our children to knowing you better. Father God, in that process, may we all recognize that we simply want to know you, we want to know the truth, we want to proclaim the truth, and we want to be doing those things to which you've called us to do. We're reminded of the great truth of Ephesians 2.10, where we are your workmanship, your masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So, Father, whatever those tasks are, whatever those duties are, I pray that we would be found delighting ourselves in them because it is simply your masterpiece. May it be to your glory. May it be for the common good of the body, the building up of this body in the most holy faith. May it be that which allows us to see Christ more clearly as we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name.